Well, how do we find words to express the size of the universe, just the measure of the universe? There are at least estimated one billion trillion stars, just estimated. It's only what we can sort of get a sense of or observe from Earth or telescopes in space. And from what we can tell, the known universe is about 93 billion light years wide, which means that if we're traveling 670 million miles per hour, it would take us 93 billion years to cross what we know about, what we get a sense of. Even after we fly past our sun, going at that speed, it would take us four years to get to the next star. It would take us 25,000 years to leave our galaxy. And it's estimated there's about 100 billion galaxies, which most believe it's just a sample of what's out there. So when the Word of God declares, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love toward those who fear Him, we're just meant to pass out. Just mind blown. We're meant to realize that the breadth and length and height and depth of God's love for His children just cannot be captured in words. We can only approximate. It's just too big. It's too deep, too wide. And it's so big that the Apostle Paul is going to pray that God would help us to comprehend it. That's how big it is. He prays that the Lord would grant us, he says in Ephesians 1, strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. He's going to beg God to give ability to comprehend, to know something that's beyond knowledge. It's bigger than what we can grasp. So how do we put into words the size of His love? the depth or the density of His love. Psalm 136, To Him who made the heavens and spread out the earth, for His steadfast love endures forever. So the size and the density of the created universe is meant to give us a taste, a sense of the size and density of God's love toward His children. Well, the earth is estimated to weigh about six million trillion trillion pounds. What the psalmist is saying is his love weighs more than that. It goes on to say, to him who made the great lights, the stars, for his steadfast love endures forever. In other words, that the density of the stars is meant to give us some sense of the density of his love for us. Well, a single neutron star weighs four trillion pounds. It's estimated to be about a hundred million of those scattered around in the universe, held in place by His Word. And he's saying the, the love of God weighs more than all of those combined, is more steadfast, is more immovable. It's His love that will endure forever, even though neutron stars won't. So if you want to set your heart to comprehend something in this life, then I would encourage you to set your heart to try to comprehend the infinite love of God for you that is poured out in Jesus Christ. Make that a central aim of your life, a central aim of your day. 
to comprehend the incomprehensible, steadfast love of God. And just that word, steadfast love, or Hebrew hesed, is used over 200 times in the Old Testament alone. And it's always in reference to the Lord, never in reference to people. This is Him. We, we can't look around at others and get a sense of what the steadfast love of God is. We can only go to Him, to His Word, because in this regard, there is no one like Him, abounding in steadfast love and in faithfulness. Over a hundred times His love will be referenced in the New Testament alone. And every book of the Bible either speaks directly to it or about it or shows a narrative that displays His love in action. In other words, He doesn't want us to miss this point about Him. He does not want us to miss this is who He is, that we should pause and meditate deeply on what it means. I'm also convinced that the devil is most committed to questioning this very thing about God in the hearts of his children, to diluting this very thing about him in our minds, that I think he's committed to making God's love seem small and fleeting to you, to make it seem like something that is based upon your performance, your size, not his size, your ability, not his ability, your character, rather than His character. And I think just the weakness of our flesh, the sinfulness of our flesh, just struggles to believe this is what God is really like. This is who He really is. And so we have to keep going back to His Word for this truth about Him. We have to keep going back to it to just meditate on it. So what we'll do this morning is look at three truths to know, three applications to do. Three truths to know in this regard, and then three applications of those truths, things for us to do. Number one, know the Lord is steadfast love and faithfulness. This is His character. And throughout Scripture, those two things, those two parts of Him are often put together. He is both abounding in steadfast love, and He is abounding in faithfulness. We see it there in Exodus 34, 6. It's like he holds his steadfast love in the one hand and his faithfulness in the other. And in the lives of his people, those two things go, go hand in hand. That with the one hand, he grants us steadfast love, and with the other, he closes us in his faithfulness. That God is love on the one hand. First John 4, 8, God is love, meaning it saturates his character, the way molecules saturate this universe the way oxygen saturates our atmosphere. So love saturates who God is, so much that He would say, I am love. God is love. 1 Corinthians 1.9, God is faithful. Even more than gravity is faithful. Even more than the earth rotating is faithful. He always keeps His promises. He always does what He says He will do. He remains loyal to His people no matter what. He never leaves. He never forsakes. He always fulfills His Word. He always does what He says He will do. We read it this morning from Psalm 25. Remember Your mercy, O Lord, and Your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. It's a way of saying they've always been. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions, even the sins of yesterday, 
According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, He instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble to what is right and teaches the humble His way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep His covenant and His testimony. He's even saying here, this is a core part of what it means that He is good and He is upright. To know His goodness, the core of it is to know His steadfast love and faithfulness. And as He says, all the paths of the Lord our steadfast love and faithfulness. This defines how He relates to His covenant people. We can say even the fact that He makes covenants is a statement of His steadfast love. The fact that He would approach us and enter into covenant with us is a statement of His steadfast love and faithfulness. Listen to this in Deuteronomy 7, know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments to a thousand generations. So it's because of his steadfast love that he's going to promise Adam in Genesis 3-5 to someday send a seed of woman to crush the serpent's head. It's his steadfast love that's going to move him to make that promise. And then it's his faithfulness that's going to move him to keep that promise by sending his own son, Jesus, the seed of woman who would then conquer Satan and sin and death at the cross. Steadfast love enters covenant. Faithfulness keeps covenant. Because of his steadfast love, God promised Abraham land and descendants, and through his descendants, blessing to the nations. Well, because of his faithfulness, he just fulfilled all those promises one at a time, right up to the coming of Jesus Christ. Listen to Genesis 24, where the servant of Abraham says, blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. Abraham's servant just looks at the giving of seed and land and blessing and all that the Lord is unfolding for Abraham and just praises God that he keeps his promises. Because of his steadfast love, God promised David that a descendant would sit on his throne forever. Psalm 89, for I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I've sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. It's his steadfast love that moves him to make such a covenant and promise. And it's in his faithfulness that God the Father will send his son into the world, Jesus Christ in the flesh, descendant of David, who's going to conquer his enemies and even now reigns over everything and is installed as the king forever. It's because of his steadfast love that he's going to promise a new covenant through the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31, I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. It's his steadfast love that would move him to make such a promise, to enter into such a covenant. And then it's his faithfulness that fulfills it. Hebrews 9, 24, For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf, 
nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he, meaning Jesus, would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. That really is the culmination of the steadfast love and faithfulness of God toward us. It is the forgiveness of our sins. It is the payment that He has provided for our sin through Christ. It's salvation in His name. That's why it says in Exodus 34, if you look there again, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. What does that mean? Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But if we, are, if we confess our sins, John says, He is faithful and just, and He will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why will He? Because He promises to. That with His steadfast love, He takes us with the one hand, and with His faithfulness, He closes the other around us, and it's done. It's finished. Sin's forgiven, put away forever. And so know the Lord is steadfast love and faithfulness. It is who He is. But also know that the Lord abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness. It's not just part of who He is, but He abounds in it as part of who He is. He abounds with love. He abounds with faithfulness. In other words, it's beyond any conceivable form of measurement. That's why the authors of Scripture say just look at the stars, look at the universe, look how high the heavens are above the earth. And if you figure out how big all that is and get your arms around it, you'll be able to get your arms around the love of God and how deep it is. Because abounding means unending. That is, His steadfast love and faithfulness, they just keep going. So take a trip to Niagara Falls and just watch 75,000 gallons of water come over per second nonstop. It doesn't end. And you'll begin to get a sense of, okay, the steadfast love of God is that abounding. His faithfulness is, it's that abounding. Especially when you think about the fact that Niagara Falls, it'll turn to sand infinitely earlier than God's love will go away. The Pacific Ocean will just dry up long before the depth of God's love or faithfulness is exhausted. So go into space and just find a black hole somewhere and then reach the bottom of it. And then you'll get a better sense of reaching the bottom of God's steadfast love and faithfulness because who is this God who makes such things? Who can make something so immeasurable, so big? Well, He must be infinitely bigger. Abounding means unchanging. It means unending. It means unchanging. That's why it's called steadfast. It doesn't change. It's, what, it's the very meaning of the word faithful, loyal to promises and unwavering in those promises. Isaiah 49, 15, can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Well, even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. In other words, if all the mothers in all the world today were to all at one time forget their children, that they existed to care for them, to feed them? Well, even that will happen before God forgets you. That all the fathers on the whole planet will forget their fathers. 
will forget the existence of their children, will forget to care for them, all of them at once, long before God ever forgets to care for you. If we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. He can't change that about His character. Abounding means unending. Abounding means unchanging. Abounding means far-reaching. Not only does His love and faithfulness never end and never change, but He can reach to anyone, anywhere, at any time and extend it to you. He can even pluck you out of the grave. That's a reach. If you end up in the bottom of the ocean, He can grab you from there. There's nowhere you can go that is beyond His reach. But then once He grabs you and brings you in, He's also far-reaching in the fact that He can put your sins as far from you as the east is from the west. Listen to this. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will He keep His anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. And when you think about it, east and west never meet. Spend the rest of your life going east and you'll never meet the west. Spend the rest of your days flying west around the planet and you'll never meet the eastern horizon. That's the point. They never come together. And so he says, that's how far he has put your sins away from you because of Jesus. They'll never meet you and your sin again. Christ puts your sin infinitely far away. Abounding means unending. It means unchanging. It means far-reaching. It also means overwhelming. As it overwhelms every adversary. It overwhelms every obstacle. Romans 8, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? This is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's how abounding it is. It's overwhelming to any enemy, any adversary, any obstacle, not demons, not persecution, no conceivable trouble, nothing in all creation can possibly separate you, not even death can separate you. So know that the Lord is steadfast love and faithfulness. Know that He abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness. But also know that the Lord chooses you for His steadfast love and faithfulness. That if you are in Christ, you confess with your mouth that He is Lord. If you believe in your heart, God raised Him from the dead. It is because God chose you to be a recipient of His steadfast love and faithfulness. He chooses to forgive you, chooses to adopt you through faith in Jesus Christ. He chooses to enter into covenant with you. He chooses to lavish grace upon you. And that really does, it just settles everything. In other words, we don't choose Him. 
that God, according to Ephesians 2, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Well, dead people don't choose anything. Let alone, you don't even choose your casket. I mean, you can do it all you want before you die, but once you die, you're at the mercy of who's ever choosing that stuff for you. You don't choose where to get buried. You don't choose what happens to your money after. You can put it all in a will if you want, but then it goes to wherever, and then they use it however. Dead people don't choose, let alone God. They can't even choose to breathe, let alone trust Christ. So we don't choose to be adopted by God in Christ. His love chooses us. What that means is since you didn't choose Him, you can't lose Him. Since this wasn't your work, it's not your work to undo. And that is a place of great security, that you can never push Him away, that on your worst days, He will persist in loving you, whether you like it or not, whether you want to receive it or not. And sometimes He'll do that just to prove how steadfast love and faithfulness He is. He will choose your worst days to make sure you see just how steadfast His love is toward you. That's why David prays, don't remember me according to my sins. Don't remember me according to what I've done. Remember me according to your steadfast love. And God loves that prayer. God says yes and amen to that prayer. He says, that's exactly how I will remember my saints. That's exactly how I remember my children, not according to the deeds they have done, but according to my steadfast love. It means we don't have to worry about losing God's love. You know, what we really need to pray for is to not take advantage of it. That's the bigger danger. If you really teach on God's steadfast love and faithfulness and His grace, the hearers will always go, well then, can I just take advantage of it? Yes, you can. And that's often what we do. That's actually the danger. We're not in danger of losing His love. We're never in danger of losing His grace, never in danger of losing His faithfulness. What we're in danger of is is taking advantage of it. It's why, as those who are in Christ, we should never doubt the salvation that we have in God. We should never doubt His faithfulness, but we can certainly doubt our own faithfulness and should. So then when we sin now, when we transgress against Him, when we wrong Him and violate His law, it's not a moment to question the love of God for you. It's a moment to question your love for Him. And we should. And that's what should lead us back to Him and cry out to Him, knowing and trusting, okay, we didn't just lose Him because His steadfast love abounds. It abides forever. We don't choose Him. We can't lose Him. We also don't earn Him. We don't earn His forgiveness. We don't earn His steadfast love and faithfulness. You know, Jesus often told parables about forgiveness that began with some debtor owing some money lender some sum of money that is beyond measurement, or it's just too much to pay back. In Luke 7:42, he told the story of two debtors that owed a money lender, one who owed him a small amount, another a massive sum, and it says, when they could not pay, which is always true of debtors before God, says he canceled the debt of both. In Matthew 18, Jesus tells another parable of a man who owed a great king 10,000 talents. 
which would take several hundred thousand years to work off, provided he didn't spend money on anything else in those hundreds of thousands of years. That that's how the Bible talks about what we owe God. It's too great to pay. It's too, too infinite to understand what sin against an infinitely holy being, the kind of debt that creates. But in that parable, also the king forgave the debt. In fact, to bring our works to God to pay the debt, to bring our deeds, to bring our own righteousness is actually offensive to him and a bit ridiculous when all he desires is that we would ask for his steadfast love and faithfulness to be poured out in Christ. It's like someone comes to you or I come to you and I give you a $300 million yacht and you say, you know what, I want to pay for it, hold on, and you hand me a nickel and then say, cool, we're even, right? And now you go throughout the world telling everybody, look at my yacht that I bought. And everywhere you drive on the ocean, it's in this yacht you purchased. Oh, you didn't purchase anything. It was still a gift. And even the nickel is a bit of an offense to the giver of that gift. Well, how much more sins forgiven? How much more everlasting life? How much more God lavishing upon us adoption and in life with Him, we don't pay for that. We don't earn that. We receive it by faith as a gift. And after that, we don't pay Him back. With the steadfast love and faithfulness of God is not a loan that we pay off. It's not a mortgage. It's a gift. In fact, His steadfast love cancels debts. It doesn't create new ones. And so if we're indebted to anything, it's to grace, which isn't a debt you pay back. It's a debt you're just continually thankful for. It's just a debt you continually adore Him for Him canceling by His grace. In fact, God created the whole universe to be the theater, the stage, the great canvas upon which He displays His steadfast love, His faithfulness toward you, toward me. His whole plan of salvation is designed to prove the undeservedness of it, the lavishness of it. And your life is the stage upon which He does it. We are the theater that God uses to display the aboundingness of His steadfast love, the aboundedness of His faithfulness. And so you don't pay for entry. You just come into the theater, you watch it, and you go, wow. And you just stand up and you applaud. And you give thanks because we're not the hero on the stage. We're the one who gets to receive mercy from the hero, grace from the hero, forgiveness from the hero, and then we just adore the hero. So God doesn't want it paid off. What He calls for, just be thankful for the gift. Every day, be thankful. Every day, be amazed. Every day, adore the one who has purchased this for you. Don't pay it back. So He chose the unlovely people of the world to show just how loving He is. He chose the unfaithful things of the world just to show and prove how faithful He is. He chose those who are most stubborn to change, to show just how powerful His life-changing grace is. That's why if there's one thing that we know about ourselves as the church, that we are the worst the world had to offer, because that's how He works. He finds the foolish things, the poor things the stubborn things, the most sinful things, the most ugly things, the most unlovely to show the depth of His love. 
and transform us by His power. 1 Thessalonians 5, Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. How are we going to do that? Well, he says, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Isn't that a great statement? It says, may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless until that day when Christ returns. How's that going to happen? Well, because God has promised it and he's faithful, he'll do it. He will present you before the Father blameless. He will present you there, clean. And so what that means is paying Him back defeats the whole point of His design for salvation, which is to show the glory of His steadfast love and faithfulness. And so again, if that kind of blows your mind, then that means you're on the right track. You're beginning to get it. If it seems too great, too good, too amazing to be true, that usually means we're, we're on the right track. And so know that the Lord chooses you for His steadfast love and faithfulness. We don't choose Him. We don't earn Him. We don't pay Him back. It's a gift. And in that gift, He is trying to display the glory of His steadfast love and faithfulness. Number four, do pray to comprehend His love and faithfulness toward you. Just because it can't be comprehended in this lifetime doesn't mean we shouldn't try or pray to or long to. Paul's going to pray to the Ephesians or with the Ephesians to God. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he might grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints. What is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God? You know, what a prayer. What hope is there for that happening? Listen to what he says next. Now to him who's able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us, To Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. In other words, when Paul thinks about the God who can do abundantly more than we can imagine, he's not talking about giving you a Mercedes. He's not talking about giving you a big house. He's not talking about helping you build some earthly kingdom. That's not what it means by He can do more abundantly than we thought, like heal us from cancer. Sure, He could. That's just not what He's talking about. What he's talking about is what God can do abundantly beyond what we think or ask is give us strength to comprehend His love for us in Christ. That's worth praying for. Every day, praying for. Beg God to grant you strength through His Spirit, firstly, that Christ would dwell in your heart through faith, and secondly, that you would have the strength to bear the overwhelming weight of Christ's love for you. And you just not have a stroke when you figure it out. That's what he's praying for. And he's able to hear and answer that prayer far more abundantly than we think. It's just not a prayer he ever says no to. This is why if you abide in Christ and he abides in you, ask whatever you wish, he'll do it for you. Because these are the things that when you pray for this, God says yes, 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 
Tomorrow, yes. Day after that, yes. Every day, yes, to help me comprehend your love. So do not firstly then or primarily pray for a better job or a better spouse or a better physical body or a better car or a better political system or a better government or better health care plan or better church or better neighbors or better fill in the blank. Okay, pray for some of those things, but just make sure they're like 48 on the list. Your first 12 items need to be help me comprehend your love. Help me grasp the depth of your faithfulness. 1 John 3, 1, see, behold, what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and such we are. John just says, behold that. Meditate on that. Think about how great a love with which the Father has loved you, that you should be called a child of God. And not just called that, call that because you are that. He just says, well, how great a love. And the response to that love is point five, do worship Him for His love and faithfulness. That the more we see how great a love with which the Father has loved us, that we should be called children of God, the more we see that we have been forgiven through the blood of Jesus Christ, the more we experience that we are okay, secure, adopted children of God because of Christ, the more we taste that every day we receive grace and live in grace, the more we see every day that we are destined for eternal glory, not for eternal wrath, the more we should just worship and just praise and just adore every day. Psalm 59 Verse 16, but I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning. Think about that. Just to rise in the morning and the thing you sing about is his steadfast love. You get in the shower, you just sing about his steadfast love. You're having time, you know, drinking coffee, having breakfast, just singing of his steadfast love. You get in your car, you're driving to work, just singing of his steadfast love and faithfulness. For you have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. O oh, my strength, I will sing praises to you. For you, O oh God, are my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love. Isn't it interesting how he puts fortress, refuge, and strength wrapped in this idea of his steadfast love? You want strength from God? Then think about his steadfast love. You want to experience the fortress of his protection? It sits secure in His steadfast love and faithfulness. It doesn't mean, okay, you won't get hit by somebody on the way to work. It doesn't mean you won't get beaten for sharing the gospel in your workplace. It doesn't mean you won't get sick or hurt or other people won't wrong you. It doesn't mean all of life's circumstances will line up. What it means is always in all of it, His steadfast love will guard you. His faithfulness will be with you and for you. That's why He's going to sing of it, even from a cave. He's going to sing of it even on run from Saul. He's going to sing of it in every circumstance. It is the fortress, is his steadfast love and faithfulness. And part of that worship is we tell everyone we know about it. If there's something we want other people to know about God, it is his love and faithfulness. Psalm 89, 1, I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. You want a mission for parenting? It's that. Just make His steadfast love and faithfulness known to the next generation. Talk about it. 
Sing about it. Explain it. Read passages about it. There's so much we can't control in parenting. You can do that. There's so much we can't control with our neighbors or in evangelism of what they do. We can make His steadfast love known. We can talk about His faithfulness to every generation, to as many who will listen and hear. It really is the essence of evangelism. Lord, what do you want me to say? Just go talk about me. Just go, go talk about it. Well, pick, what do you want me to say? Well, pick anything. Just anything about me and start talking about it. Go to the Bible. Tell people about me. Tell of my steadfast love, what it's like. Talk about my faithfulness and all of how that's wrapped up in Jesus Christ. Make me known to them. And so we sing to God with thanksgiving and wonder. Listen to Psalm 101. I will sing of steadfast love and justice. To you, O Lord, I will make music. It's why other false religions don't have hymn books. You just don't have anything that moves you to make music. Not really. Not real music. I'm not talking about sort of the music of this world that sort of talks about love all the time, which isn't real love. That's why you listen to all the thousands of artists making all kinds of songs about love, but when you listen, you go, okay, that's not love. It's a false love. It's what I call parasitic love. It's not a love of agape, of pouring out for others. It's a love of I need you, I want you, gimme, gimme. So if you want to take all the love songs of this present age, just put them on one album and just title it, If Parasites Could Sing. (laughs) This is what they would sing. I need you, I want you, I can't live without you, I've got to have you. And, And that's just not the love that we see in Scripture from God, which is a love of self-sacrifice, a love of pouring out, a love that is steadfast no matter how treated is faithful. Well, that's the love that makes you sing, like really sing in response. That's why I want to, you know, all, some of these artists that will write some of these song, music, you know, on love and things that they'll sing to somebody, I just want to ask, well, are they singing back? Because if somebody sang that to me, I wouldn't really have a positive response. Well, this is the kind of steadfast love and faithfulness that God sings over us that you sing in response. It moves the heart to sing. Because when we see it, when we hear it, we're really beholding glory. I mean, why fly to Arizona to look at the Grand Canyon? Why go find a desert on a clear night and just look up at the stars? Why go to Niagara Falls and and see what's happening? Is it not to behold glory? Is it not to see something so splendid and marvelous that you just can't can't watch it through a movie? You've got to go witness it. Well, this love of God that is in Christ is infinitely grander, infinitely more glorious than when you see it, when you behold it, when you taste it, when you come to know it more deeply, you sing more deeply. You worship more deeply. You adore the one who loves this way. So do worship him for his love and faithfulness. And then finally, do follow his example of love and faithfulness. That once we behold it, once we give worship for it, we beg him to help us embody it. We pray that he would fill us with his spirit, and the fruit of his spirit is love. The fruit of his spirit is faithfulness. 1 John 4, 7-11, Beloved, let us love one another, 
Why? Well, for love is of God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God has made, was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins, the wrath-bearer for our sins, the one who absorbed wrath for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Part of what he's saying is if you really want to see sort of the pinnacle of his steadfast love and faithfulness, look at the cross. Look at how he sent his son into the world. Look at how his son went to the cross to redeem his bride from her sins. Look at what Jesus accomplished there for your salvation. And now pray to love as he has loved. So if we really want to change and learn how to love, then we must know the God of love. We must meditate on His love, especially that love that is expressed at the cross. And we must set our hearts to love as He has loved us. So if you're even here this morning and, and you don't know Christ, you don't trust Christ, you've not given your life to Christ, you'll probably find, if you're honest, that all your attempts to love, to share love, to understand love, to be loving, just fail every day. I know apart from Christ, mine do. And what it's meant to show us is how incapable of love we are, how both unlovely and unloving we are apart from this grace that is poured out in Christ. And so what he calls you to do is not work harder at love, being loving, but first look to the cross where God's love for you is expressed, where forgiveness of sins is offered, where reconciliation to God through faith in his name can happen. And what he does is he gives you a new heart. He gives you a whole new desire to love. You'll start wanting to love in ways that you just never did before. You'll start grieving your lack of love in ways you just never have before. You'll start praying for and wanting to love others in ways you never thought you would want because he'll give you a new heart, a new spirit within you. For us as Christians, though, we're called love one another. Often in Scripture, Jesus is going to say it as, I've loved you, so love one another. So love one another just as Christ loves you. Forgive one another just as God in Christ forgives you. Husbands, love your wives. What does he say next? Just as Christ loved the church. In other words, just as he loved you and gave himself for you. Wives, love your husbands just as Christ loved you and continues to love you. In other words, he doesn't call us to take our feedback from our spouse and how we love them. He doesn't call us to take our feedback from neighbors and how we love them. He calls us to take our feedback from Him. We love others as He has loved us, which is why we want to be constantly looking at how He's loved us, because that's where we'll take the power and the cues for loving others from. Children, love your parents. Neighbors, love one another. Love your friends. Love your other neighbors, just as God loves and cares for you. This is how the Scripture talks to us now. Be faithful in your promises. Be faithful in your work. Be faithful as a friend. Be faithful in your church. Be faithful to your Lord. Why? Well, because His faithfulness toward you knows no end. Lamentations 3, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. 
His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And that's what he wants us thinking about and dwelling upon and meditating on as the very energy, as the very motive, as the very power for loving others, for being faithful to the promises that we make. 2 Corinthians 5, for the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. The love of Christ controls us. In other words, it restrains us from doing what we shouldn't, compels us to do what we should. So the question for you to ask yourself this morning is, does the love of Christ control you? Does it rule you? Does it get you out of bed in the morning? Does it get you to work each day? Does it control what you say and don't say? Does His love for you control how you relate to other people? Does His love for you control how you go about doing your chores at your house, how you respond to your parents as children, how you respond to your mate as a married person, how you respond to your your roommates, how you respond to suffering, how you respond to mistreatment, how you respond to adversity and trials, how you respond to sickness. Does the love of Christ control you? That's what we want to pray for. Lord, help me comprehend your love. Lord, control me with your love. To know the Lord is steadfast love and faithfulness. You have to know that. Know the Lord abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness. Make it your mission in life just to keep reaching for knowledge of this thing that is beyond knowledge. But not on your own. Pray to comprehend it. Know the Lord chooses you for His steadfast love and faithfulness. So if you have it, you can't lose it. But rather pray to comprehend it. To comprehend His love and faithfulness toward you. Do worship Him for His love and faithfulness. Do follow His example of love and faithfulness. So that with each passing day, we as a church are more and more being conformed to His image. And what does that image mean but to be abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness? That's one of the ways He will use the church to show the world what He is like. Is as we, as His body, more and more abound in love and in faithfulness every day. Let's pray and ask for God to do this.